You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. When the Canaanite king, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negeb, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Atharim, he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. And Israel vowed a vow to Yahweh and said, If you will indeed give this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. And Yahweh heeded the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites, and they devoted them and their cities to destruction. So the name of the place was called Hormah. From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then Yahweh sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against Yahweh and against you. Pray to Yahweh that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And Yahweh said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. And the people of Israel set out and camped in Oboth. And they set out from Oboth and camped at Ai Abarim, in the wilderness that is opposite Moab, toward the sunrise. From there they set out and camped in the valley of Zered. From there they set out and camped on the other side of the Arnon, which is in the wilderness that extends from the border of the Amorites, for the Arnon is the border of Moab, between Moab and the Amorites. Therefore it is said in the book of the wars of Yahweh, Waheb in Safah, and the valleys of the Arnon, and the slope of the valleys that extends to the seat of Ar, and leans to the border of Moab. From there they continued to Beer, that is, the well of which Yahweh said to Moses, Gather the people together, so that I may give them water. Then Israel sang this song, Spring up, O well, sing to it, the well that the princes made, that the nobles of the people dug with the scepter and with their staves. And from the wilderness they went on to Matanah, and from Matanah to Nahaliel, and from Nahaliel to Bamoth, and from Bamoth to the valley lying in the region of Moab by the top of Pisgah that looks down on the desert. Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, saying, Let me pass through your land. We will not turn aside into field or vineyard. We will not drink the water of a well. We will go by the king's highway until we have passed through your territory. But Sihon 
would not allow Israel to pass through his territory. He gathered all his people together and went out against Israel to the wilderness and came to Jahaz and fought against Israel. And Israel defeated him with the edge of the sword and took possession of his land from the Arnon to the Jabbok, as far as to the Ammonites, for the border of the Ammonites was strong. And Israel took all these cities, and Israel settled in all the cities of the Amorites, in Heshbon, and in all its villages. For Heshbon was the city of Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who had fought against the former king of Moab, and taken all his land out of his hand, as far as the Arnon. Therefore the ballad singers say, Come to Heshbon, let it be built, let the city of Sihon be established. For fire came out from Heshbon, flame from the city of Sihon. It devoured Ar of Moab, and swallowed the heights of the Arnon. Woe to you, O Moab! You are undone, O people of Chemosh. He has made his sons fugitives, and his daughters captives, to an Amorite king Sihon. So we overthrew them. Heshbon, as far as Dibon, perished, and we laid waste as far as Nophah. Fire spread as far as Medabah. Thus Israel lived in the land of the Amorites. And Moses sent to spy out Jazer, and they captured its villages and dispossessed the Amorites who were there. Then they turned and went up by the way to Bashan. And Og, the king of Bashan, came out against them, he and all his people, to battle at Edrei. But Yahweh said to Moses, Do not fear him, for I have given him into your hand, and all his people, and his land, and you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. So they defeated him, and his sons, and all his people, until he had no survivor left, and they possessed his land. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado. For what it's worth, this is episode 637 of this podcast and also Tuesday, June 13th, 2023. That was a very, very exciting chapter of numbers, especially coming on the heels of a very sad chapter. Here you have God giving the enemies of Israel into the hands of the Israelites after and even in the midst of grumbling, complaining, judgment, you have God being faithful even as his people are, shall we say, a work in progress. We are a work in progress. They were a work in progress. As saints, if we're in Christ, we have the Holy Spirit and we have God's word. We still require the patience of God. We still depend on the grace of God. But let's not presume on the grace of God because here we have God taking it very, very seriously when there is grumbling. Just consider with me for a moment everything that's happened to this point. You have God having brought Jacob and his 12 sons, their families, his family, his household, his servants, his livestock, all that he has into Egypt, 
in the days of Joseph. You have Joseph being in a very prominent position in the land because God has blessed Joseph, despite, again, speaking of works in progress and hard-heartedness and grumbling, despite Joseph's own brothers selling him into slavery, despite Joseph having been falsely accused of attempted rape of his master's wife, you have Joseph in a position of prominence being gracious with his brothers and with his extended family and bringing all of the above into a place of provision and protection in Egypt. But what follows is bondage and slavery and oppression for 430 years, 21 generations, depending on how long you think a generation is, 21 generations is a long, long time. And then God calls Moses. Moses, a fugitive from justice for having killed an Egyptian that he saw beating a Hebrew, beating an Israelite, whipping him, harming him, abusing him. God calls Moses in a burning bush in the most inconspicuous way in some sense because it's just Moses passing through, just passing along, not expecting to encounter the God of the universe, the Most High, the Almighty, not expecting to encounter Yahweh. Moses, nevertheless, is called by God to go to Pharaoh and say to him, let my people go. So they are his people. Even then, all the way through, actually all the way back to at least the covenant made with Abraham. I will make of your descendants a great people, a mighty nation, affirmed again to Isaac, affirmed again to Jacob. But that's hundreds of years ago. Here is Moses, and God sends him to Pharaoh and tells him on the front end, he's not going to listen to you. In fact, I'm going to harden his heart so that I can make an example of him, so I can make my name great. And what happens? Exactly what God said would happen God hardens Pharaoh's heart, and it also says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, and so this is in tandem, right? Which came first, that Pharaoh already had a hard heart, or that God hardened his heart? We don't know. We don't know. But the fact is, the text records both. So God is working on the heart of Pharaoh, and also, Pharaoh is just self-willed in and of himself. He's in a position of prominence. In fact, everybody, except for the priests, everybody in Egypt belongs to him. All the land belongs to him. All the livestock belongs to him. How wouldn't he be arrogant, haughty, full of himself, hubristic, stubborn, self-willed? Nobody tells him no. Nobody tells him what to do, but here he is. And God has commanded him, a God that Pharaoh doesn't worship. He worships many gods. He doesn't worship this one, has commanded him to let this people go. And he refuses. And so God sends plagues on Egypt and on Pharaoh's household and on all the households of Egypt, culminating in the death of the firstborn of every household, which is a fitting punishment for a people, for a Pharaoh who is in the line of murdering baby boys born to the Hebrews or ordering for them to be murdered. Surely some were murdered on the order of Pharaoh 
because he was something of an ethnic cleanser. He was something of a eugenicist. This guy was bad news. This people listened. The midwives didn't listen, but there is no record of the Egyptian people writ large having disobeyed, having disregarded. And how could they? They were slaves. Also, they belonged to Pharaoh. They were his possession. How could they say no? What would happen to them if they didn't kill every baby boy born to the Hebrews? Nevertheless, God brings Israel out. He brings this people out of Egypt by his mighty right hand and protects them and provides for them, and they grumble. Sometimes they obey, and they do exactly what they're told, and other times they grumble, and they complain, and they murmur, and they conspire to overthrow Moses and Aaron, but ultimately to put off obedience to God and to have new gods, to put off who God has chosen to lead them and have new leaders. And in the chapter that preceded this chapter, you have Moses and Aaron right after the death of their sister Miriam, disobeying God in full view of the whole congregation of people. They were commanded to speak to the rock and then water would be brought out of the rock because it was actually God who would have brought the water out of the rock by his mighty right hand, the same mighty right hand that protected, that fought for Israel, that delivered Israel and liberated Israel from 430 years of hard bondage, that same mighty right hand was going to provide for them water in the desert, in the wilderness. And what do they do instead of speaking to the rock as they're commanded? They strike the rock and they speak harshly to the people. And that is not what God commanded them to do. And so the consequence, the discipline for all to see is they will not go into the promised land. And what follows shortly after is the death of Aaron. And you have to think to yourself, maybe, just maybe, Aaron was already very close and God was sustaining him. God was keeping him alive. In some sense, perhaps, Aaron's devotion to God was keeping him alive. And now he's heartbroken. First, his sons are consumed after offering strange fire, innovating on worship. They were not told to innovate. Neither were Moses and Aaron told to innovate. They were told what to do, and they did something else. And so God struck them dead in full view of all, because they're supposed to be examples. And they can be examples of obedience and lead the people that way, or they can be examples of disobedience and serve as illustrations, serve as warnings and cautionary tales. You have Aaron perhaps dying of a broken heart in some sense, and perhaps in another sense, realizing, okay, this is the end of the line. And God knows what he did with Aaron. It's appointed once for a man to die. The end of the story was not so happy and faithful on Aaron's part, but we can trust to the goodness and justice of God that he keeps the souls of those who know him and fear him and love him. So maybe we see Aaron in heaven, despite his disobedience at the last, because it's God's grace that sustains all throughout this life. And if God is redeeming his people from 430 years of hard bondage in Egypt, is it too great of a thing for God to redeem his people from the grave and give them life eternal in a better promised land? No, indeed. 
But then comes this chapter. This chapter follows shortly on the heels of that. And we have the king of Arad coming out against Israel and taking captives. And Israel vowed a vow, if you will indeed give this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. Now, it's curious how this shifts to the first person and the singular, I, Israel. Israel is speaking, I. So this is all of the people as one man speaking. And it's important to note that this is in contrast to the double-mindedness, where you have some who obey and they do exactly what they're told, and they have others who grumble. But then in the very next section, you've got the bronze serpent. You have the people again getting a little full of themselves and forgetting themselves, grumbling against God and against Moses. And it's still a problem that they're grumbling against Moses, despite his having disobeyed and there being a discipline and a consequence for that. Moses is still in authority over Israel. And they grumble and they say, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? So again, they're impugning the character of God. They're questioning and challenging and even denying the goodness of God. So God disciplines them again. Think here of a child. If you have children or if you've been around children and you know of certain children who do a naughty thing, something they're told not to do, or they don't do the thing they're supposed to do, and they get a spanking. In our household, we don't give out a lot of spankings, but there are times where you just have to learn this lesson. Now we can't afford for you to just do whatever you want. You're going to break things that are expensive that we can't replace. You're going to harm other people. You're going to harm yourself. No, no, we have to give a spanking here. And we've had children where we spank them and they're not crying after a spanking, after a swat on the bottom. They're not crying only out of grief and sadness. Actually, sometimes our children, some of our children, after getting spanked, have cried an angry cry, right? It's an angry cry. How dare you? It's this defiant, ooh, man, I don't like that you just did that to me. I'm ready to fight. And sometimes those very same children, what do they do? They go right back to doing the thing that they were told not to do. They try and do it again because that's how they're going to fight. I'll show you for spanking me. I'm going to do it again. And what do you do? Well, if you want some parenting advice from a father of eight with a ninth on the way, yes, spank him again. And you say, no, I said no. And what you might need to do is you might have to get creative after that and say, okay, I'm going to remove you from this situation. I'm going to put you in a timeout after a spanking, not instead of a spanking, by the way. Lots of parents get that wrong. God made their bottoms so padded <laughs> so that you can take a paddle, right? Take a paddle to the padding and they'll be okay. Spanking then timeout, right? While they're calming down so they can think about the relationship between their behavior and attitude and consequences. <clears throat> the idea is correction, not just punishment. Punishment is supposed to be a means to an end, the end being correction. If you can give a verbal correction to some children, great, wonderful. We've had kids like that too. I tell them to not do something and then they're like, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. You disapprove. <laughs> and others, they go back again and again and again and again 
But in actual fact, God is correcting this people, this nation, and he is dealing in the macro. And he also knows the very personal, the very individual. He knows who are his, but he sends serpents. That same mighty right hand that can deliver them from the Egyptians, that can deliver their enemies into their hands, that can provide for them in the wilderness food and water, can also deliver correction. And so here are these fiery serpents. And if they get bit, they die. So these are venomous, it would seem, venomous snakes. And you say, well, that's wild. That's wild and crazy. And then what's the antidote? The antidote is not some medicine. It's not anti-venom per se, except that their problem, their ailment is first and foremost spiritual. It's first and foremost a factor of unbelief. And so the antidote is a bronze serpent that if they will go and look at it after having been bitten, they will be healed. The significance here of the bronze serpent is belief by grace through faith. They're forgiven and they're healed and they live. And this is a foreshadowing of what we have in Christ. Death is put up on a pole. And everyone who comes to look at the Messiah and believes on him and him who sent the Son is saved. But then what follows after is you have some singing, right? We have singing after changing camp, packing up, moving, packing up, moving, packing up, moving. And we have a reference to a book we don't have. We don't have the book of the wars of Yahweh. I would love to read that book. That sounds like a great book. I love that stuff. I want someone to find that book and I want to read it. But then what we have is battling against King Sihon of the Amorites. We have a very similar request for safe passage through as was sent out to Edom and very, very similar. The answer is no. No, you may not. And yet, Israel fights this time. They fight and they win. And they take the land of Sihon, king of the Amorites. All the cities. And then they settle in the cities of the Amorites, in Heshbon and in all its villages. Then we see King Og. We see King Og of Bashan, who comes out to fight them as well. And just think with me for a moment. Think with me back to Genesis and back to 400 plus years prior, how the sons of Jacob responded when Dinah, their sister, was, as it says in some translations, humiliated. A certain prince of the Canaanites saw her out and about, unaccompanied, unprotected, thought she was hot stuff, took her and played with her. And then all of a sudden, he tells his father, I want this girl. I'm in love, dad. Get this girl for me to be a wife to me. But her brothers, Dinah's brothers, no, no, they deal very shrewdly. And they set up the men of that town. And while these men are recovering, from being circumcised, these sons of Jacob come in and they 
kill them all. They put them all to the sword when they are too vulnerable, too weak and miserable to defend themselves. And the response from Jacob is, you have made me to stink in the nostrils of the people of this land. And now they're going to come against us and we will be destroyed because we don't have enough fighting men to defend ourselves against the surrounding peoples. Yeah, you dealt with the men of this town, but what about the other towns? What about the other surrounding cities? So now it's been over four centuries, probably approaching five centuries, and you've got to think to yourself, if those peoples for five centuries have passed on a memory of the sons of Jacob dealing with some of their neighbors or their ancestors' neighbors in that way, here come the descendants of those peoples out of Egypt and their reputation precedes them just as especially the reputation of Yahweh, their God, precedes them. But if they're unbelieving, if Og, for instance, is unbelieving or is hostile to this God, because his power comes from demons, fallen angels, rebellious angelic beings, what's he going to do? He's going to muster his forces and fight. We're going to nip this in the bud right now, except they don't succeed. They are given over into the hand of the Israelites. All his people, all of his land, and so Og and his sons and all his people are destroyed. And there were no survivors. And then Israel has Og's land as well. Now, what's especially important here that we would understand about all of this is if we are uncomfortable with God commanding, fighting, and killing, and battle, and war, because, well, that's not the way that it's supposed to be. Understand that that is restoration. That is justice. God knows what these peoples have done, who they are, who they worship. As we'll come to find as we go on, these peoples who inhabit the promised land are exceedingly wicked and evil, and they do very evil things. And that's why God is driving them out. That's why God is giving this land to Israel as a possession. These are not innocent folk minding their own business, living in harmony with nature. No, no. These are evil, corrupt, vicious, oppressive, murderous peoples, depraved, mean, cruel, rapacious, infanticidal. They have filled up the cup of wrath, and God himself is dispensing the justice through Israel. We should also understand from Ecclesiastes, there is a time for war. There's a time for peace, yes, but that time is not all the time. There's a time for war as well, just like there's a time for peace. This is a time for war. And so God gives the victory. As his people trust in him, as his people obey him and serve him, God gives the victory. God himself fights for them. And what we find, and we will find this as we go, when God doesn't fight for them, or when, more to the point, these people do not obey God, they don't listen to God, they don't obey God and trust God because they obey God, they are blessed, but because they trust God, they obey. 
when that's not the case, God doesn't go with them. They are just on their own, and they find that they are actually not such mighty warriors in and of themselves. But for the grace of Yahweh their God, they don't win. But with the blessing of God, they do win. Speaking of winning, I want to switch gears here a little bit and talk about child rearing and discipline a little bit more holistically. So we were just talking about correction and how God is correcting Israel here. And I was also explaining about disciplining children and how some are very easily corrected. All you have to do is say, no, I don't want you to do that. Let's do this instead. Others are very strong-willed, very stubborn, very defiant, and you have to apply (laughs) the uh, rod of correction to the seat of instruction. But let me share with you the other side, the positive side of child rearing and child development. You need to have an ability to associate negative consequences in a young child's mind with behaviors that are unacceptable, attitudes that are unacceptable. You need to be able to do that. But if you don't have the other end of the equation, if you're not associating positive consequences with good behavior, with desired behavior, with good attitudes, then you've only got half of it figured out. And in fact, I would say you're going to create a very anxious child, a very nervous child, a very fearful child, or a very frustrated child, perhaps all of the above in turn. If you only have the positive consequences, but you never deliver any negative consequences, I would say the same is also true. You're going to have a wild child who is in their quieter moments, very anxious because bad things just happen to them and they have to figure it out on their own. They don't have mom and dad helping them to understand the relationship between choices and either good outcomes or bad outcomes. They just have to figure it out. It's the role of a parent, of a good father, especially in the context of how God is relating to his people. We have an example to follow, but It's the role of fathers to instruct their children, mothers to instruct their children in the ways of wisdom and righteousness, in the fear and instruction of the Lord to bring them up in the way that they should go. But there's an article or a brief blog post that I found from March 7, 2019 in oaktreekids.com's blog titled The Importance of Play in Childhood Development. And just briefly, I want you to appreciate how important play is, either for the good or for the not so good of a child's cultivation of character and wisdom. Stephanie Nerepil, M-S-O-T-O-T-R-L, I don't know what those stand for, but I'm sure there's some kind of certification. Stephanie Nerepil posted this blog in which one paragraph sums up what I want to share with you under the heading, Play Improves the Therapeutic Relationship. Put aside the therapeutic piece here. Not everything needs to be therapy. When everything is therapy, nothing is therapy. When it's all therapeutic, nothing's therapeutic. That's important to remember here. Very similar to if it's all just positive consequences, you're going to have an anxious person, a fearful person, a wild person. If it's all just negative, well then, what are you actually teaching? What are you learning? Play, Stephanie writes, 
Play is a key component to the therapeutic relationship between a child and the occupational or behavioral therapist. I would say this should be more properly parent. (laughs) Parent. Play in therapy, let's say parenting, let's just substitute the word parenting here for therapy. Play allows a child to enhance learning readiness, attention span, and problem-solving skills. In fact, according to the research by Dr. Karen Purvis, scientists have discovered that it takes approximately 400 repetitions to create a new synapse in the brain, unless it is done in play, in which case it only takes 10 to 20 repetitions, whether it be board games, crafts, puzzles, or imaginative games. A child is always learning. For learning to occur in play, it should be done in a stress-free environment, and it should be meaningful for the child. It is important to foster the development of skills in play in order to help children reach their full potential. Now, Again, what did I say? Set aside the talk of therapy. When everything is therapeutic, nothing is therapeutic. What this actually is people who don't know how to parent, in many cases, for lots of reasons, right? For lots of reasons. They weren't taught how to parent. They weren't shown how to parent. They weren't encouraged to parent. In fact, they received a lot of discouragement to parent culturally, thanks to Dr. Spock, thanks to this spirit of the age which says if you damage a child's self-esteem by telling them, no, don't do that, stop it, come over here instead. If you damage their self-esteem, you've just handicapped them for life. So many parents for generations were told that, and so they learned parenting without parenting. They learned that the job of the parent is just to feed, clothe, house, and watch their children develop because their children are inherently good instead of Children needing instruction, correction, training in righteousness. Parents for generations in America have been told, your child is as righteous as they can be when they're born. And you as the parent, you just have to get out of the way and trust the experts. What would be better than some parts of this paragraph I just read for you is if this were advice to parents. Parents, play games with your kids. Or if you're going to do a project together, Maybe make it fun if you can. You can go too far with that too, but make it into a game that you would practice in play, having fun, good behaviors, and good attitudes. I do this with my sons in particular, our older boys. I play games with them so that they will cultivate good character. I don't play games as often as I should like, but I play games with them so they can cultivate good character and wisdom and they can develop discerning minds. I enjoy my boys playing games with one another where I oversee and I watch and I listen and I correct when a certain attitude, a certain way of relating is not so good. It's not a good way to practice. It's bad form for future life that they are going to live. They're learning patterns of behavior, patterns of relating certain attitudes. I want them to make sure they're learning the right ones. But this idea that play only takes 10 to 20 repetitions versus 400 in order to create new synapses in the brain, I have found to be very much the case. And it's not a bad thing so long as the 10 to 20 repetitions are repetitions of good behavior and good ways of relating and good attitudes. In fact, if you can accelerate that much, if you can reduce by 
20-fold or 40-fold the amount of time and energy that it takes to learn good behavior and sound reasoning and thinking and good ways of relating. Well, of course you would want to do that, but then it works the other way too. And if you're not being intentional, if you're not being careful, and if somebody else is overseeing a bad kind of play, what will you get? You will get bad behaviors, bad attitudes learned very quickly. And this will become more clearly relevant as we go along, because at the end of this podcast, I want to talk about Ben Shapiro's book, Brainwashed, about our higher education, our college system, university system in the US. I have some thoughts. I have perhaps possibly some insight along with the review of his book from 2004 before he was a big name. But play as a way of learning, as a medium of learning, will factor into how we talk about his book and what he details in his book. For now, let's talk about a board game that I had the pleasure of trying out and playing with my friend and pastor Paul Pavlik last night. Our boys, so his two oldest sons, my two oldest sons, plus also a couple of other boys that they're all friends with, they get together on uh, most Monday nights for the past six months or so, and they play a role-playing game together where they are adventuring. And it's fun. They create their own characters. They build their own experience, and they navigate these situations together. And it's really good stuff. It's fun. I'm glad that they have an opportunity to do that together, get to know each other, and also learn, right? Play as a medium of learning factors in there too. I know they're teenage boys, but I love that they are getting to know one another and they are thinking through situations, even in a fantasy context together. But Paul and I and our friend Aaron, we have recently decided, you know what, since these boys of ours are getting together and hanging out and playing games, maybe if we're free on Monday nights and Aaron and I or our wives are bringing our sons to play together over at the Pavlik's. Maybe just maybe us dads should also get in on it. And rather than just dropping off our boys and going home, maybe we stick around and we play a game together. Us dads play a board game. Paul's got lots of board games that he's accumulated over the years, lots of really cool board games. And so let's try, right? Let's try playing board games together and hang out, get to know each other, relax, unwind a little bit. And the game of choice last night, it was just Paul and I playing. The game of choice last night was one called Arc Nova. This one was released in 2021, it looks like, from BoardGameGeek.com. It's got a rating of 8.5 out of 10. And it takes between 90 and 150 minutes to play. And I'm sure that's the case once you've learned it, once you've figured out how to play it. But the game is you building a zoo in a competitive fashion, and you're trying to increase the appeal of your zoo, make it an attractive zoo for visitors to visit, and you're also trying to support conservation efforts. And so you gain points in both fields, and you have little markers that once they meet up or pass one another, for any player who's playing, 
the game is over and you score accordingly. Whoever's got the most points wins. And so you've got cards and you've got a map and you're putting exhibits onto your map as you go along and you're getting animals and you're bringing animals in to the zoo and those give you appeal points. And then you're also partnering with zoos on other continents and you're bringing in experts and you're bringing in additional features for your zoo. You're partnering with universities to do research projects. And all of this supports conservation, and it also makes your zoo a pleasant place to be. And so we played this game, and it was very, very close. It went longer, I think, than it typically would because he had to refresh his memory on how the game is actually played. And then he also had to explain to me how the game is played. It was a super cool game. Very, very fun. Arc Nova. I would buy it. In fact, we might buy it this coming school year with my tech high funds, because I think it could be very educational. You learn a lot about animals and about how to build uh, a zoo. Those principles, how you would build a zoo or a public uh, attraction like a zoo or how you would approach a complicated project. Those lessons learned can translate to lots of different other things, being competitive, learning how to be competitive in a way that is agreeable It's not either or, you're either competing or you're cooperating, especially if you're learning a game together, you're cooperating in trying to learn the game even as you're competing with one another. And so you both get better and that's good. But this game, it was interesting to me to think about in relation to what I just read for you from Oak Tree Development and Stephanie Narapil with the importance of play in childhood development. It's not just children, it's also adults. When does the cutoff happen for playing games together in terms of learning? And here, what I intend to do is I intend to suggest to you that we can learn how to relate to each other better through playing games together. And that's part of the reason why we should want to play games together or play sports together. You know, there were stories that I grew up with about my grandpa Mullet, who was a farmer and farmed along with his sons and sometimes extended family in the area of Bloomfield, Montana. You can look it up. It's a very remote and very underdeveloped part of the country. Uh, There are basically farms and a post office and a gas station and a little school and a church, and that's about it. That's about it for Bloomfield, Montana. But my grandpa was, in some sense, uh, legendary. I don't know if you could say legendary. Maybe that's not the right word, but he was famous for, well-remembered for, when it was planting or harvest time and the machinery was breaking down or it was acting up or the weather was bad and frustration was building and patience was wearing thin. My grandpa Mullet was the kind who would, at a certain point, as he was gauging where everybody was at, emotionally, mentally, physically, to some extent, if he noticed that everybody was getting a bit too tense, a bit too frustrated, what he would do is he would say, okay, you know what? That's enough of this. Let's go play some baseball. Let's go play some volleyball. Let's go play a game. Let's do something else for a little bit and we'll come back to this. And so what would they do? My grandpa and my uncles and extended family 
would just drop what they were doing for right now with the equipment, with the farming process, and they would go and play a game together. And they would relax and stop being so tense and stop being so frustrated and aggravated and have some fun. And then when they came back, they would be in a better spot individually and together as a group. They would be in a better spot to pick back up and figure it out and fix whatever was not working properly. And I think a very similar thing is appropriate, not just for kids. I think it's appropriate for kids, but I think it's also appropriate for adults. I think it's also appropriate for men and women to get together and play some cards, play a board game, do something fun as a way of practicing how to relate to each other, how to, yes, sometimes compete, right? That doesn't have to be selfish ambition and vain conceit, but we can be competitive with each other and want to strive and aspire to improve on the best practices of one another that we observe. And that can actually be beneficial. If I see Paul, for instance, doing something very clever in a board game, and I think, oh, you can do that. Oh, interesting. I didn't even catch that that was a thing. Cool. Now I want to do it, but I'm going to put a little spin on it, see if I can do it even better than he did it. You can take that kind of a mindset into real life, and then all of a sudden you're walking into, and I'll give an example from the night before last, you're walking into a situation where your family is invited over for dinner at another family's house. And next thing you know, in my case, I was being given something of a tour of their property. And in this case, Dr. Noche was explaining what part of the house was original and what they had built on. And he had had this done over here and then he'd had this done over there. And then they fixed this up and they expanded that and they put some walls in here. And then he and his dad, I think it was, built the decking on the back of the house where he was grilling up burgers and brats and hot dogs. Delicious, by the way. Absolutely delicious burgers. And I'm looking at all this and I'm thinking, you know what? That's great, right? That's super. That's excellent. And also I'm taking mental notes. And it doesn't have to be a selfish ambition and vain conceit thing if I'm now brainstorming actively about, you know, what if there are some similar kinds of things that we could do to revamp our space at home? I wonder if I could do a similar thing, but maybe maybe do it better. Could I improve on how he did this thing or this lesson learned? He made a mistake or it didn't go quite as he had hoped. And so if he had it to do over again, he would do it such and such a way. And so I'm going to listen closely and I will become more wise And then if I have an idea, if I've also done something like that, I could say, well, have you tried such and such? And there can be a competitive quality to that. There can also be a cooperative quality to that. But I dare say, play, playing a game, playing a board game or a card game or a computer game, for that matter, video game, especially as a surgeon. There's a lot of surgeons who play computer games, video games that require very fine-tuned hand-eye coordination and motor skills very precise movements. They'll play those kinds of games because it helps them to practice for when they're in surgery. But somebody's life doesn't necessarily depend on it when they're playing Call of Duty. Well, so also socially, if we can learn how to get along together better in play, I think 
That is not a childish thing. I think it's a very wise thing. Shifting gears a little bit, though, from talking about games, which you might have noticed was already probably helping you to think differently about these other broader topics, even just talking about play puts your brain into a different mode. We'll switch gears back into something a little more serious with a quote from The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl R. Truman, forward by Rod Dreher, excellent book. There's a book review by Brittany Shields I want to draw your attention to briefly over at Shelf Reflection. Very punny, by the way. Excellent name for a blog. But she very helpfully quotes this book. And if you have thought about reading it, uh, the book that is, maybe check this review out, see what she has to say, check out some of these quotes. Maybe that will help seal the deal. I would highly recommend you do read the book, but I want to share this quote with you briefly for the purposes of this podcast. The quote goes as follows, and this is one of the main points of the book. If you could summarize it briefly, Carl Truman writes, the rise of the sexual revolution was predicated on fundamental changes in how the self is understood. The self must first be psychologized. Psychology must then be sexualized and sex must be politicized. End quote. Now, this is very important for reasons which will become clear as we go along. The idea that the sexual revolution was predicated on fundamental changes in how we think of ourselves. This is very, very important. We need to understand this is the foundation for so much of the strife and the upset that we see around us with the transgenderism thing, the Dylan Mulvaney and Bud Light controversy, the Pride Month displays, with tuck-friendly swimsuits at Target and that whole controversy, this is the root. This is the foundation for our present troubles. The self was psychologized, psychology was sexualized, sex was politicized. And that's why these things go together. They're a package deal, not for no reason, not accidentally. But let's talk about another place we're seeing the sexual revolution play itself out. Annie Ma, Claudia Lauer, and Adriana Gomez de Kong with the AP published a piece June 7th, one week into Pride Month, as they call it, reposted at the Billings Gazette. As conservatives target schools across U.S., LGBTQ plus kids and students of color feel less safe. Now, I don't even need to read the article. The headline alone is what most Billings Gazette readers will see. And when they see it in a moment, they have already been propagandized. The title of the piece is Propaganda. It's manipulative, it's dishonest. It's malicious, it's slanderous, it's libelous, it's false. Conservatives are not targeting schools. The LGBTQ plus movement has targeted schools. Let's do remember 
whose children these are, by the way. Parents have children. Schools don't have children, but schools can take children or receive children or demand children. Parents have children. Biology 101. Schools don't make babies. Schools can teach kids to fool around, and then all of a sudden there are babies. Or parents can have children. A mom and a dad can reproduce in most cases, and then they can send their kids into the schools. But notice here, you have conservatives presented as mean, evil even, possibly. I mean, who targets schools except for bad people? Bad people target schools. And what's the consequence? Lesbian, gay, bisexual, transsexual, queer plus kids and students of color feel less safe. So in other words, what is strongly suggested, thinly veiled, is that homosexuals, bisexuals, transgendered kids, non-binary kids, and children of color need to fear conservatives. These dangerous conservatives need to be stopped. That is the propaganda here. This is not a good faith argument. This is not accurate. This is propaganda. It's not true. On a lighter note, and actually as a way of illustrating the principle at root with play being a medium of learning, (laughs) except I'm going to tell you how the sausage is made here. That's the difference. I'm not being manipulative. I'm explaining to you how this works as I'm doing it. Watch closely how I do this and now look for it when other people do it. I'm going to play a bit of audio for you posted by Jesse James, not his real name, I'm sure, over at Not To Be, embedding a tweet from Ian Miles Chong with a video attached. Ian Miles Chong tweets out Democrats when they realize they have to vote for Joe Biden. Here it is. Cut one. Take a listen. They're really going to make me vote for Joe Biden. the best case scenario Joe Biden Okay, and you're welcome, and I'm sorry, all at the same time, because that song is going to be stuck in your head. If you're anything like me, that song has been stuck in my head since the 10th for three days. I'm just walking around doing something. I glance at the news or I see a notification on some news app on my phone. And the next thing you know, I've got this little ditty, (laughs) this little 45 seconds of magic playing in my head again. Uh, It's pretty great. It's pretty great. I want to hear a full song. We need to turn this into a full-fledged masterpiece. Please and thank you, Ian Miles Chong, if you can reach out to the people who made that 45-second clip. Uh, let's let's do it, right? Let's make it happen. It's great stuff. Uh, but in all seriousness, right? In all seriousness, there's a little bit of play here, and this is very closely related to the importance of comedy 
and fiction and the formation of culture, actually. This has a lot in common with me getting together with some other dads to play some board games or my teenage sons getting together with their teenage friends to play Dungeons and Dragons. This is very closely related to what we're going to be talking about with the colleges and the universities. The formation of culture is upstream of our political situation. And so we have to think about what kind of a culture have we been creating? What kind of a culture should we be creating moving forward? Our choices in relation to one another, our relationships, the relationships of our households and our homes and our families to one another, that is how you build culture. And we're not the only ones building culture. There are other people who have a alternative vision, as Carl Truman's quotes from The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self makes clear. There is a conflict of visions, as Thomas Sowell would say, and how we relate to people who have conflicting uh, religions. There's a slip of the tongue, but it's true. It's a Freudian slip. Conflicting religions, liberalism, progressivism, secularism is very religious. Tom Holland also speaks to this in his book, Dominion. So much of even the secular modern world is very Christian, very evangelistic in its zeal, in its ambition to spread these ideas far and wide and to convert the whole person, to dogmatically demand belief and obedience. But to have rituals, to have holidays, or more to the point, holy days, to have festivals, to have rites and sacraments. There's a competing religion that is an imitation or a parody or a caricature of Christianity, which Christians of good faith, those whose names are written in the book of life and the book of the Lamb, as we interact with others, we are helping to build culture and to create culture. And sometimes that takes the form of making art or writing works of literature or making music or making jokes or telling stories or playing games, gathering together for meals, sitting down and having conversations, all of the above. And it's important work. It's very, very important work. Note some reporting from Paul Saka. Statue honoring Revolutionary War hero removed after nearly a century. June 10th over at TheBlaze.com, Paul Saka wrote about a statue dedicated to Revolutionary War hero General Philip Scheuler that stood over Albany's City Hall for nearly a century and was removed the previous Saturday morning because Scheuler owned slaves. The removal of the statue took about three hours and reportedly cost the city $40,000. This statue will be temporarily housed inside an undisclosed storage facility until a permanent location is determined. The city council will launch a monuments commission to decide where the statue will be relocated to. Why is it going to an undisclosed location? Because vandals who want to tear down the previous culture as they form a new culture if they knew where the statue was going to, would destroy it. So it can't go up anywhere else. And they would destroy it, perhaps having a jolly good time. They would make it into a game 
But what they would actually be doing at root is self-actualization according to their vision of the good life and their concept of self. What they would actually be doing is transforming culture. The removal of the statue at all, us even talking about it at all, as now having been dishonored, the memory of this revolutionary war hero being dishonored is a consequence of culture. The kinds of games that have been played, the kind of music that has been sung and heard, the kinds of stories we've been telling and enjoying, the kinds of meals we've been sitting down for with one another. This is an expression of cultural transformation and change, and this is a mechanism. This is a way of changing culture. Uh, Interestingly enough, another way that culture is being transformed here is hinted at in some reporting by Ben Whitehead over at the Daily Wire, June 11th, in a piece titled, President Biden wants to give Trump death sentence for documents, GOP rep says. We find out that Representative Nancy Mace, Republican from South Carolina, has characterized Joe Biden's attitude and orientation towards his political rival, former President Donald Trump, as wanting him to die in prison. Here's the quote. Every time the Oversight Committee has evidence of corruption, bribery, money laundering on the Biden family, they indict Donald Trump. Joe Biden wants to give Donald Trump a death sentence for documents. He's facing hundreds of years for mishandling documents, and they want him to die in jail. Most of America sees this for what it is. It's weaponizing the executive branch to take out your political enemies, end quote. Now, let me just suggest to you, this is deep and heavy stuff, I realize, but let me just suggest to you that you can practice having a better attitude towards competition by playing board games and card games and computer games. <laughs> you know, it, you, you can. If there are no rules or if people are allowed to break the rules, bend the rules, ignore the rules, and just threaten everybody that they play against, hey, you're going to let me win or I'm going to beat you up. I'm going to lock you in a cell for 400 years. If little kids are allowed to play games like that, and then they grow into teenagers who play games like that, and they grow into 20-somethings and 30-somethings who play games like that, if they get into a position of power and authority by acting that way in real life as they relate to people in real-world situations, how have they practiced to play? It's worth thinking about. Next time you sit down to play a board game, or if you avoid games because These attitudes and these ways of relating are present and you just don't want to deal with them. Guess what? They're going to be everybody's problem. If your kids are not corrected, if you yourself don't correct yourself when you want to relate in these bad ways in a game, if you're just avoiding that, well, it's going to come out anyways, but it's going to come out when the stakes are very high, when the consequences are very dire, like in this case. On a side note, I really wonder what it was like to play Monopoly with Joe Biden when he was in his teens. What it was like to play poker with him. I'll bet you he was the kind who, if he was losing, would just throw the whole table or lean in and whisper something ominous. That's how he's acting. That's how he's relating. Not winning fair and square. What will he do? Try to jail his political opponent. Bad form. Bad form, bad sportsmanship, 
But of course, this isn't fun and games. It's not fun and games, and that will be increasingly clear as we go along. I'm going to play cut two for you, some audio of former President Donald Trump speaking in relation to the most recent indictment regarding handling of classified documents. Not to be staff published this post as of yesterday, embedding the tweet with the video. Trump promises final battle to demolish the deep state. Here it is. Cut to take a listen. We are a failing nation. We are a nation in decline. And now these radical left lunatics want to interfere with our elections by using law enforcement. It's totally corrupt and we can't let it happen. This is the final battle with you at my side. We will demolish the deep state. We will expel the warmongers from our government. We will drive out the globalists. We will cast out the communists. We will throw off the sick political class that hates our country. We will roll out the fake news media. We will expose the rhinos for what they are. We will defeat Joe Biden and we will liberate America from these villains once and for all. We will liberate. We're going to liberate our country. Now the gloves are off if they were on before. And this is, again, not fun and games. This is super serious business. This is the kind of rhetoric which comes from a place of heart on both sides that could very quickly turn into a very serious conflict. And it's a serious conflict now, but when I say very serious conflict, what I mean is the kind of conflict that we're reading about in Numbers 21. In Numbers 21, you have a request for safe passage through some land. And the answer is not just no, but I'm going to send armies. And those armies will ensure that you do not pass through. Or in other cases, you have God sending the people of Israel in and an army comes out to meet them and there's a battle. That's the kind of serious that this is because it's not just no big deal. It's not just a game. It can start out as games. Politics can be a game, absolutely. It can start out as games and then very quickly turn into what these games are supposed to be preparation for and a proxy for a more civilized way of resolving difficulties and learning how to relate to one another through. The situation that we're in right now with left versus right, with the radical left against conservatives, targeting conservatives, openly, publicly waging lawfare and in the media portraying concerned parents as enemy, as danger, as threat, that very, very soon can boil over into battle, war. There's a time for peace, yes, absolutely, but there's also a time for war. And I'm not calling for that. I am predicting that unless there is a major course correction. And the course correction cannot take the form of the winsome Christian folk just give the radical left what they want. They'll get tired of it at a certain point. That's not how that works. Part of how I know that's not how it works is 
I remember back to when I was a kid and my grandmother bought me a Super Nintendo console for my birthday. And as it was being unboxed, it arrived in the mail. As it was being unboxed, my dad, I'll never forget, my dad said, well, let's let Bryce have the first turn. He'll get tired of it before you know it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let him have the first turn. He did not ever get tired of it. (laughs) He didn't. At a certain point, you have to say, okay, no. We have processes. We have procedures. We have laws. We have regulations. We have mechanisms. We have norms. We have institutions. All of the above are under assault by the radical left because all of the above stand between them and getting everything they want, whatever they want. If they're not accustomed to being told, no, you can't have that. In fact, if they have learned through the medium of play to this point to just bowl over whoever doesn't give them what they want, they've been trained and conditioned to just keep on until there's either a fight or they have total power, total control. The question for us is, are we willing to say no and have no mean no? Again, if this is a game and somebody's trying to bend the rules or they're trying to cheat or they're trying to throw a tantrum because they're losing, how you practice in that moment makes a big difference for when that person and you are out in the non-game scenarios and how that goes, how that plays out. We have a whole lot of people who have practiced for this to be very ugly, barring some kind of divine intervention. Now, someone who comes to mind as perhaps not fully appreciating what's in the mix here is Mark Tooley, writing for Providence Magazine, April 21st, 2023. I'm sure Mark's a great guy. I've seen him put on and organize events that I found very stimulating, very thought-provoking. I've heard him speak in various videos and audio and podcasts. He's a very smart guy. He's very well-connected. It's also very establishment, which makes me not trust him. And his article, Deep State Theology, in Providence Magazine, makes me me trust him even less. I'll just be honest. For all the reasons that I am skeptical of his being establishment, I read this and I think, aha, there it is. I look at this piece and I just think, "Mm, mm -mm." what does he say? Well, it's not a long read. I'll just read the thing for you. Mark Tooley writes, when reading last week's How the Deep State Took Down Nixon in Compact, a new self-identified radical post-liberal journal, Oliver Stone came to mind. In Stone's 1995 Nixon biopic, Anthony Hopkins as Nixon realizes he's not really the most powerful man in the country, but is instead beholden to the beast. At one point, Nixon is driven down a long, dusty Texas rural driveway to meet who is apparently really in charge, an oil billionaire named Jack Jones and played by Larry Hagman, better known as JR in Dallas. But the beast is more expansive as a conglomeration of big business and intelligence agencies manipulating events for their own power and profit across decades. In the film, the beast is also represented by CIA director Richard Helms, villainously portrayed by Sam Watterson, better known as the indefatigable law and order prosecutor, Jack McCoy, who vaguely threatens Nixon with what happened to JFK, i.e. assassination. The Beast won't tolerate Nixon's peacemaking because it profits from war. Nixon is a follow-up 
Two Stones 1991 biopic JFK, which portrays the beast killing JFK for the same reason, his aversion to war. The compact article essentially agrees with Oliver Stone that Nixon was taken down by the national security state. Nixon wanted detente with the Soviets. U.S. withdrawal from Vietnam, rapprochement with China. The deep state wasn't going to tolerate that. The Watergate break-in was actually set up by the CIA to destroy Nixon. According to the article, the FBI, Joint Chiefs of Staff, and CIA weren't fighting to limit the imperial presidency, but guarding their own institutional autonomy and interagency consensus. Nixon challenged and defeated that consensus, precipitating his downfall. And now, quote, mindful of Nixon's fate, most presidents, but not all, prefer to avoid defying that consensus, end quote. Such narratives claiming that an ongoing, all-powerful secret cabal really controls the levers of power are always appealing. They seem to comprehensively explain why so much is wrong. It turns politics into a simple morality play pitting noble outsiders against the sinister system. We the people, however, we choose to self-identify our innocent victims to a more powerful elite that cannot be dislodged. We deserve so much better, but who will deliver us? We need a political savior. Compact editor Sorab Amari tweeted, quote, long live Nixon, end quote. Nixon was not a savior or even outside the post-World War II consensus of which he was a chief champion. He was a very talented, intelligent politician who believed in America, but also was insecure, paranoid, and conniving. His paranoia, insecurity, and obsessions directly fueled his administration's ridiculous felonies like the break-in of the Democratic Party headquarters at the Watergate. He perhaps could have survived the revelation had he not launched an even more absurd cover-up that prolonged the crisis over a grueling two years domestically and internationally, weakening America, guaranteeing the collapse of Southeast Asia, and subjecting the country to the horror of a presidential self-implosion. The conspiracy theory by Compact asserts or implies the deep state tricked the Nixon administration into an illegal and bungled burglary, orchestrated the D.C. police arrest of the burglars, and inveigled Nixon and staffers into a prolonged and hapless cover-up attempt accompanied by the president's personal meltdown and recorded by the president's own taping devices with nearly all his staffers turning state's witness. The smoking gun that doomed Nixon recorded him instructing the CIA to claim responsibility for the Watergate break-in so the FBI would not investigate. It was a ridiculous proposal, hardly a conspiracy. The Watergate fiasco was tragic clown show. Despite his supposed Vast powers, as portrayed by Compact and Oliver Stone, CIA Director Helms was fired by Nixon and sent to Iran as ambassador. Compact also cites J. Edgar Hoover, who of course had already died before the Watergate break-in. Nixon's appointed successor, FBI Acting Director Patrick Gray, quickly imploded thanks to his own mishandling of Watergate. Compact faults FBI Deputy Director and Hoover acolyte Mark Felt, later revealed to be the Washington Post's deep throat source. Hoover, Helms, and Felt all had long government careers like Nixon with equally complex records and motives that they connived together to destroy a presidency is ridiculous. Hoover, a longtime Nixon friend, was probably the one senior figure, had he lived, 
who could have counseled Nixon away from the Watergate disaster. Conspiracy narratives try to synthesize complicated and contradictory motives and actors into a single cohesive purpose, which is rarely plausible. Human nature is such that most people, even at their most devious, are typically responding day by day to events according to their best lights, not plotting intrigues with large numbers of people that require years to unfold. All persons and institutions are self-interested and self-protective, competing against each other for advantage. Hoover felt Helms and the Joint Chiefs of Staff were not opposed to detente with the Soviet Union or negotiations with the North Vietnamese. They jealously guarded their own institutional prerogatives. Nixon even more so guarded his and obsessed over enemies real and imagined. He kept secrets and distrusted them as he distrusted nearly everyone, and they responded in kind. The White House plumbers were created to plug leaks in the administration and ended up committing burglaries and plotting other felonies. Nixon often had nutty ideas, sometimes fueled by drink, like firebombing the Brookings Institution, which his more experienced aides knew to ignore. Less experienced aides sometimes took him seriously. Figures like Hoover and Helms often rightfully protected their agencies from egregious administration politicization or criminal proposals. Hoover, for example, shrewdly blocked the infamous Houston plan, crafted by a very young Nixon staffer for mass illegal wiretaps and break-ins to combat domestic terrorism. Interestingly, Nixon seems to have had not much interest in conspiracy claims about Watergate. He refused to meet the authors of Silent Coup, one book, Compact Sites. Perhaps he was too much of a realist to believe such fantasies, however appealing. Claims of conspiracy are typically escapes from reality. They also feed our own egos and self-righteousness by imagining that our preferences are noble but defeated by undefined vast sinister forces with almost supernatural power. Real life, especially as seen through the prism of Christianity in which God is sovereign and fallible humans have agency but limited power, is more complicated and interesting. Human nature can sink to fathomless depravity but thankfully is restricted by divine grace. People with sinister plots may imagine they can orchestrate large events in their favor with precision, but are almost always disappointed. The good news is that the wicked, no less than the righteous, are highly fallible. Claims about a dark, deep state 50 years ago or now distract from addressing an always more challenging reality. Bureaucracy of all sorts, especially government, are inert, wasteful, self-serving, and resistant to external direction, yet they also bring some continuity and wider consciousness of public service beyond passing partisan desires. No person or entity, neither a Nixon nor an agency like the FBI, can be completely entrusted with power. They must be balanced against each other. For Oliver Stone in Nixon, and seemingly for Compact, the explanation for the world's evils lies at the end of a long Texas driveway with a deviously smiling oil man portrayed by Larry Hagman. But in God's real world, there's a bit of Larry Hagman in each of us all the time, trying to completely control, but thankfully denied that power. We might recall Nebuchadnezzar's prayer to the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice, and those who walk in pride he is able to put down as among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand. End quote. Mark Tooley is IRD's president and editor of IRD's foreign policy and national security journal Providence Prior to joining the IRD in 1994, Mark worked eight years for the Central Intelligence Agency. Okay, now let's just stop. Let's just stop right there. Mark Tooley worked for the CIA for eight years. 
his insider perspective could be, guys, I've worked for the CIA. These things you're talking about, they don't happen. They're not real. This is not how it works. You're giving us too much credit. And that could be genuine. Or, <laughs> or the other option would be, hey, I don't like what you guys are saying because it works contrary to the goal I was very committed to furthering for eight years at the CIA. You know, there's a couple of ways to look at what Mark Tooley writes here. Uh, one of them, one of the ways is to say, yeah, he's probably right. It's not as bad as some people think it is. God is in control and God won't let bad things happen past a certain point. And the wicked people, they're inept, they're corrupt. They're incapable of pulling off any of these schemes. They're just going to bungle it and it'll be fine, right? It's, this is all fine. It's fine. This is fine. No worries. The conspiracy theorists, you can ignore them. They make you uncomfortable. You don't have to do anything with what they say. Just tune it out. Right? Don't listen to those guys. They're idiots. And you know what? Sometimes the conspiracy theorists are idiots. And so it can be very easy to say, yeah, all the conspiracy theorizing, a whole lot of nonsense. Half-baked, diluted, sometimes deriving from substance abuse or mental illness, sometimes just sloppy reasoning. But there's another way to look at what Mark Tooley is writing here, and it is to say, how little credit are you giving to spiritual forces of darkness? I realize, yes, wicked people, fallible, not always as bright as they give themselves credit for, but at the same time, there are spiritual forces at work in the world. So we read in the New Testament, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but that's not the end of the statement. We do wrestle against powers and principalities. And those powers and principalities must exist. Otherwise, we would be delusional. So if you don't believe that there are powers and principalities, I can see how it would be easy to wave off and dismiss somebody who says, you know, something sinister is afoot. Something evil is happening. If the consequences are evil and consistently and again and again, a certain consensus is either vindicated or it takes vengeance on those who challenge it or question it or upend it, it is worth asking if the common denominator is conspiracy. People do conspire. Now, just because you can find fault with Nixon or his staffers or Trump now, for that matter, and his administration, people who served with him or were appointed by him or who supported him, just because you can find fault with all of the above, that doesn't mean that there's no difference. It doesn't mean that it's all the same. And it doesn't mean that they're just imagining things or making things up if they say, ah, there's a coordinated effort by something like what we would call the deep state to get these people and to remove them. This has played out before in previous times and places that what starts as grumbling and murmuring about the status quo being challenged can turn into palace coups. We see this in Edward Gibbons' Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire. At the tail end of the Republic and the Empire, you had people working together. The end of the Republic was the Triumvirate, three powerful, influential men who agreed to work together until one of them turned on the other two 
and there was a civil war. If somebody contemporaneous to them had said, yeah, I think these guys are scheming. I think it's not by accident that they happen to be working in ways that benefit one another and themselves. I think they're behind closed doors conspiring together. They might have been dismissed and you might have been able to find fault with somebody who was theorizing about the triumvirate as we know it now or the men individually working together. But the truth was the truth and the truth was that these three men were working together until one day they weren't. And then two of them were trying to destroy the third one. And then later on, it was a conspiracy of notable, powerful, influential men that murdered Julius Caesar. Why? Because he was ambitious, as Mark Antony says in his famous speech by Shakespeare. He was ambitious. Even Mark Antony's speech alludes to the capacity of human beings to scheme and be very clever and say something not quite exactly what they mean that you have to understand as being coded language. And you have to understand based on their relationship to others behind the scenes and their larger ambitions. Ambition is a thing. People can be cruel. People can be dishonest. People can be predatory. And actually, this is another thing that we can find when you play a board game. How would it be if I'm playing a board game, a strategy game, competitively, and I have secret cards that are going to award me points at the end of the game, known only to me, and somebody walks in as a third-party observer, and they say, oh yeah, no, he, he doesn't have any cards that you haven't seen. No, no, he's not pursuing any goals that you don't know about. Only what you see before you is what he's up to. That, that would be total nonsense, especially when the other player sitting across from me, has secret cards that will award him points. When you know that that's how the game works, you expect that people have secret cards that they are pursuing. The New Testament admonition to do nothing from selfish ambition and vain conceit is not there for no reason, because the temptation for us is to do everything from selfish ambition and vain conceit. And apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, what do we do? We don't have separation of powers, checks and balances like the founders of this country built up and instituted. We don't have a Bill of Rights and a Constitution apart from the grace of God helping us to understand the human condition, sinful man, and what to do about the same. What God has done, yes, but also what we should do to be wise as serpents. To be wise as serpents is to say there are serpents. In short, Mark Tooley's dismissive here is too slick and it's too clever and it's too convenient for the folks who just want to believe everything will work itself out. Yes, God is sovereign. Yes, God is in control. That doesn't mean that the status quo that might be profitable to some is going to carry on as it has, unabated, unperturbed, without effort, without obedience on our part, without faithfulness on our part, without effort and work on our part. The work that we do is not the be-all, end-all, but it's God who gives the enemies of the Israelites in Numbers 21 into the hands of the Israelites. That is to say, they have enemies, and it's not enough to say, well, what's the difference, right? What's the difference between the Israelites? Everybody has a sinful nature. No, no. No, there are degrees here. Not, don't, don't wave this off with all sin is sin. 
the people who inhabited Canaan were totally ripe for judgment according to God. God disciplined his people but did not destroy them. He kept using them and providing for them and protecting them and leading them and correcting them and training them. And then when God gave their enemies into their hands, God didn't say, do nothing. What were they to do when their enemy was given into their hands? Deal with them. Dispose of them. But if you have no enemies, well then, you don't ever get to that part. And if you don't believe that God actually uses human agents to put down those who walk in pride, well then, you're missing quite a lot in the biblical narrative and in the historical narrative. The arc of history involves not just God working and acting and ordaining things. It also involves God raising up others when certain people prove themselves to be corrupt and wicked and depraved. And that's true in an American context. The bureaucratic state is a real thing. And as Mark Tooley admits, the bureaucratic state can get very defensive about its own interests, its own initiatives, its own prerogatives. If you know that, Mark Tooley, and we all should know that, it's very self-evident, how is it beyond the pale, how is it not obvious that what people will do out of that defensiveness runs the full gamut and is only limited by our fear of God and our imagination? If someone has shown themselves to have no fear of God, or if a institution has shown itself to have no fear of God and to have a very active, engaged imagination, well then, that's not all we need to know, but that's quite a lot. That's quite a lot. More than Mark Tooley is giving credit for, I dare say. Let's change topics a little bit here, and perhaps that will help us to gain perspective or regain perspective. Edward Teach made me aware, June 5th, of some aggressive actions on the part of China's Navy. Aggressive Chinese warship cuts off U.S. destroyer in Taiwan Strait, nearly kicking off World War III. I won't play the audio for you, but I will embed a link to this, and you can watch the video for yourself. The reporting from NBC News, however, I will read for you. The U.S. Indo-Pacific Command said in a statement Sunday night that it shows the Chinese Navy ship execute maneuvers in an unsafe manner. China defended its actions on Monday, saying it always respects international law. Beijing has long asserted that the strait is part of its exclusive economic zone and not international waters. Hmm. In other words, in other words, <clears throat> Taiwan belongs to China. So get out. Applying Mark Tooley's kind of thinking to this business with China, you might say, ah, you know, it was probably just uh, an honest mistake, right? Those Chinese warships. And they probably didn't mean anything by it. I, I wouldn't worry too much. Yeah, it's fine. It's fine. The warships, I, you know, really isn't it all just a question of how you use a warship? I mean, maybe they're just out there to um, whale watch. You know, maybe, maybe they're out there because uh, somebody's aunt wanted to see the coastline on that side of the ocean. I, I don't know. I mean, there's lots of lots of things. I mean, who are we? Who are we to judge? China has warships. We have warships. You know, it's all the same. 
God's sovereign. Don't worry about it. But of course, we look at a situation like this and we say, this is symbolic. These are gestures. This is communication. This is body language as a kind of posturing to get what they want without having to fight. Sun Tzu would say that the best strategy, the height of strategic brilliance is to win battles and wars without having to fight. Part of how you do that is you remove the capacity for your enemy to fight. And that could be strategic or material. It could also be their will, their desire, their commitment to fighting. You remove their ability to fight and you will have won the war as long as your objectives are accomplished. Why fight, right? Well, so also, if China is getting very aggressive and very assertive here, and that scares us, we say, well, we don't want World War III. And they're like, okay, well, then give us Taiwan. We're like, well, no, you can't have Taiwan. And they're like, well, do you want World War III? And we're like, well, no, we don't want World War III. And we can go round and round like that. We understand that these are gestures and posturing to the end of accomplishing a win. If these are games after a fashion, the Chinese have been practicing to defeat us, not to just let us do whatever we want, not to just let us have whatever we are laying claim to, not certainly to let Taiwan continue on being an independent country apart from China. Well, bureaucracies here in the U.S. work like that too. Human institutions of every kind can work like that too. We need to be aware that people can have cards in their hand and they can bluff or they can really have those cards. And we can bluff or we can really have those cards. At a certain time, at a certain point, I think we're actually going to ante up and we're going to play our cards. And yes, God is sovereign, absolutely. But humanly speaking, we should still be thinking ahead and thinking strategically and preparing ourselves. We should still be wise in light of God being sovereign and what he has commanded and what he has told us about his nature and the nature of his promises and his commands should inform how we relate to these things, but we don't just shrug and say, it'll be fine. Just one more story though. One more story before we get into talking about Brainwashed by Ben Shapiro. Dave Urbanski reports for TheBlaze.com. June 9th, Asian American who scored 1590 out of 1600 on SAT got 4.65 GPA, says he applied to Harvard, Princeton, four other elite colleges, and they all rejected him. They all rejected him. John Wang, an Asian American, achieved a nearly perfect score of 1590 out of 1600 on the Scholastic Aptitude Test and attained 4.65 grade point average in high school, well beyond perfect. Most folks likely would assume that waves of red carpets would come rolling in from elite colleges that would love nothing more than to scoop up a student boasting such numbers. Indeed, Wang told Fox News he applied to six top-tier institutions of higher learning, Harvard, Princeton, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, also known as MIT, the California Institute of Technology, Carnegie Mellon, and the University of California, Berkeley. But the verdict, despite Wang's performance, which included a perfect 800 on the math portion of the SAT, was a resounding no from all six schools, the cable network program said. Wang, a Florida native and the son of two first-generation Chinese immigrants, told Fox News the rejections weren't entirely surprising. 
given that he spoke to friends and school guidance counselors amid the application process, and they all said the same thing. Quote, quote, they all told me it's tougher to get in, especially as an Asian American. I just took it as gospel. End quote. Now, this might confuse you. This might throw you for a loop. You might hear this story and wonder to yourself, why, right? Why? He's not white. He's not white. He's not a white American. And what could the possible reason be when his scores are so high to be rejected by all of these schools? All of them? Don't they bring in the best and the brightest? Now, if you read John Taylor Gatto, he would tell you, in fact, these elite schools care first and foremost about eugenics and social engineering. And insofar as affirmative action is promoting social justice, and therefore if Asian Americans and white Americans, Asians more than white Americans, statistically are making higher wages and higher salaries, or they're consistently having more prestigious, more white-collar jobs, we need to actually penalize them relative African-Americans and Hispanics. People of color isn't just a concern relative white people. People of color is a concern relative the larger goals of the social justice warriors. Those larger goals are at root one goal, which is Marxism, socialism, communism, call it what you will, Marxism, seizing the means of production, redistributing capital of all kinds, not just money, right? Money is just one form of capital. Seize and redistribute. Call that justice. Even if it means ignoring and not rewarding someone who worked very, very hard in school, ignoring him when he applies for your university, your institute, your college, because he's coming from a race, from an ethnos, that is disproportionately doing well. Ben Shapiro writes about this in Brainwashed. The publisher's summary from audible.com reads as follows. When parents send their children off to college, mom and dad hope they'll return more cultivated, knowledgeable, and astute, able to see issues from all points of view. But, according to Ben Shapiro, there's only one view allowed on most college campuses, a rabid brand of liberalism that must be swallowed hook, line, and sinker. In this explosive expose, Ben Shapiro, a UCLA graduate, reveals how America's university system is one of the largest brainwashing machines on the planet. Examining this nationwide problem from firsthand experience, Shapiro shows how the leftists who dominate the universities, from the administration to the student government, from the professors to the student media, use their power to mold impressionable minds. Fresh and bitterly funny, this book proves that the universities, far from being a place for open discussion, are really dungeons of the mind that indoctrinate students to become socialists, atheists, race baiters, and narcissists. Copyright 2010, Ben Shapiro, published 2017, Blackstone Audio Incorporated, the audiobook version, of course. But this here, being the product of Ben Shapiro, who is 39, by the way, he was born January 
1984, according to the Wikipedia article for him, being written and published back in 2004, that would have made Shapiro all of 20 years old at the time of publication. He's written 11 books. He was formerly editor-at-large for Breitbart News from 2012 until he resigned in 2016. He is host of The Ben Shapiro Show, a daily political podcast and live radio show. He also serves as editor emeritus for The Daily Wire, which he co-founded. Ben Shapiro, at 17, became the youngest nationally syndicated columnist in the United States. He writes columns for Creators Syndicate, Newsweek, and Ami Magazine as well. He comes from a conservative Jewish family, born in Los Angeles. He now lives in Florida. He moved there here not all that long ago because California has just gotten crazy and Florida is a much more free state. They responded to the COVID pandemic much better. In fact, as well as California responded poorly and other states like New York responded poorly, Florida responded well. Fun fact, Ben Shapiro's full name is Benjamin Aaron Shapiro, so that's cool. But I followed him for a number of years. I rather enjoy his insight, and you may know him for his famous line, the facts don't care about your feelings. In fact, why don't I just go ahead and play for you cut three. Here is a bit of audio from the exchange which made me aware of Ben Shapiro in the first place. Take a listen. Here's cut three, and then I'll have some more thoughts on his book. Good try. (laughs) You have to bifurcate it. Did she deserve the honor? Probably not. Is she brave? Of course she's brave. All those years invested as as this sports legend to come out transgender is horribly difficult. It is the most difficult thing you can do. I've been overseas. I've flown uh, helicopter missions, surveillance missions. I've been shot, stabbed. Being brave is being yourself. And being transgender is, is about the bravest thing you can do. Did she deserve the award? Yes. Why are we mainstreaming delusion? Uh, it's not delusion. Why, why would you delusion? call it delusion? Because Bruce Caitlyn Jenner, I'll call him Caitlyn Jenner. No, because it's that's her. Gonna... You're not being polite to the pronoun. Because disrespect. Okay, forget about the disrespect. Facts don't care about your feelings. It turns out that every chromosome, every cell in Caitlyn Jenner's body is male with the exception of some of his sperm cells. You it turns out that his doctor is male. Wait, I need it to... turns out that he still has all of his male appendages. But How this... he feels on the inside is irrelevant but... to the question of his biological status. I'm not, I don't agree with that. I'm not on that train. <laughs> I'm not on that train. <laughs> so she she wants spoke. to be you called she. I'm going to call her she. I just have a problem with the message and the messenger. So, well, let's let's now let's. I'm going to do two things. I want to re- reiterate what Zoe said, which is the bifurcation of the courage to come forward after a lifetime as a male and a certain kind of a male, versus did she deserve this award? Listen, the awards. What are award ceremonies except an opportunity to catch some eyes? Especially the ESPN. So, yeah, it's like ESPN. Well done, ABC. They did exactly what their job was: oh, attract eyes. They did it. That's what award ceremonies are for. But. In terms of the science behind gender uh, dysphoria, you, you're very familiar with that, Zoe. Very familiar. It's not about the chromosome. Excuse me, the chromosomes within we our nuclei. We both know nuclei. Yeah, chromosomes don't necessarily mean you're male or female. Gender. 
with gender, gender identity. Go ahead. No, so Especially, what, but even so, you have a thing like Kleinfelter's syndrome. So you don't know what you're talking about. You're not educated on genetics. Would you like to discuss the genetics? Or well, no? well, no, what no. Are your genetics. So I'd stay away from the genetics and back to the brain scans. You cut that out now, or you'll go home in an ambulance. Yeah, that seems mildly inappropriate for a political discussion. No, yeah. I know. Well, yeah. but wait, to be fair, but to you, be, but you to be fair, wait, but to be fair, you are, but to be fair, you're actually being hey guys. rude. You're and, that, no, 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 and that's no, no, no. not fair. I'm sorry, it's not rude to say that someone who is biologically a male is a male. You just someone who is biologically sir. male is a male. But Mr. So, Shapiro, you know, you knew very well that saying that to Zoe would be would be egregiously insulting. And cut. No pun intended when talking about transgenderism. Right there, you may have caught it when it first made headlines and was all anybody was talking about politically, but that was back in 2015 that this exchange occurred. And 2015, just a year before Ben Shapiro ended up leaving Breitbart, and next thing you know, we've got the Daily Wire. Next thing you know, you've got talent like Michael Knowles, like Andrew Clavin, like Matt Walsh joining. This exchange is how I was introduced to Ben Shapiro. This exchange that I just played the audio for you was 11 years after the book in question that I just finished reading, Brainwashed, was written and published. So Shapiro was not just some guy, not just some random dude, some random young Jewish man coming on to Dr. Drew's program to talk about Caitlyn Jenner winning a Courage Award. But here he was. He was seated next to a transgendered person, a man who dresses like a woman, grows his hair out long, puts on makeup, and demands, doesn't ask, demands to be referred to with female pronouns. Here was Ben Shapiro sitting next to this transgendered person and referring to him as sir, he got a very heated response and a threat. You cut that out or else you're going to be going home in an ambulance. A hand on the back of Ben Shapiro's neck, intimidating, aggression, not very ladylike, shall we say. But 11 years prior, Ben Shapiro wrote and published Brainwashed. And in Brainwashed, one of the things you will find if you read it is that almost 20 years ago, it was already very bad in the colleges and universities. There was already a intolerance for anything which you could call conservative thought on climate change, on gender, on sexuality, on foreign relations. There was already a push for socialism, for Marxism, for gender theory, for critical race theory, even if many of us didn't know what that was. Until relatively recently, there was already a big push in the universities. And then as if somebody put a key in the ignition and turned the engine on, all of a sudden it was everywhere and all the time and coming at you from every direction as if on cue, these little fires started up all over the country. But where 
where the arsonists trained. They were trained in our public colleges and our public universities, which have been taken over by Marxists, by socialists, by atheists. You are not welcome in a public college, in a public university, as a conservative, as a Christian. And that's been true for a long time. That's not a recent development. 2004, Ben Shapiro is a a little older than I am. 2004, he had already spent some time in the public colleges and universities. And so he was writing from firsthand experience, seeing these things up close. He was already writing back then and getting flack for writing conservative essays and articles. But he was going to class and he was talking with professors and observing professors, talking with classmates and observing classmates. And in 2004, I myself was going into my senior year of high school. I graduated high school in 2005. Actually, 2004 to 2005 is when I started attending community college classes for dual credit in Southern Ohio, Hillsborough, Ohio, attending classes at Southern State Community College in Wilmington and in Hillsborough, both campuses. The things that Shapiro is writing about in Brainwashed, where every subject, every field was marinated in gender theory and in radical progressive ideology, I saw that. I experienced that. I had a film class, for instance, where the very first film we were going to watch as a class, I don't even remember the name of it, but we're sitting there in this class at the Wilmington campus. And the opening scene of this film is a few high school or college-aged boys in the bushes being peeping toms, watching a girl undress in her room through an open window. And she takes off her top and you see everything. And what did I do? I was a senior in high school slash freshman in community college. I got up and I walked out and I did not come back for any more of the movies. I would come back to class for lectures and I followed along with the reading. I did all of the alternative. You can watch something else if you want and then write about that if you don't make it to class to watch this film. And at the end of the course, I was giving I, I was given a failing grade, uh, plain and simple. My assignments were turned in and everything was on time, but I didn't come to any more of the movies because at the time, here I was, a homeschooled student. This was my first experience with college, community college, but college. Tuition was paid for as long as you pass the classes and get good grades. Here I was, and the very first film to watch and write about and discuss and analyze was, as far as I was concerned, having been raised in a very conservative Christian homeschooling family, as far as I was concerned, that was pornography. And I was very uncomfortable, extraordinarily uncomfortable. That's not what I signed up for. And my professor gave me a failing grade. And because I had to enroll through a traditional school in order to take community college classes, We appealed my having gotten a failed grade and submitted all of my assignments, all of my essays, all of my test work, plus the syllabus to the Adams County Christian School that I had enrolled through 
And they double-checked everything, and their English teacher for high school seniors graded my work, and I got an A. So it wasn't the quality of the work. It was the fact that this professor was angry and upset and offended that I had gotten up and walked out of class. And he knew why. I didn't explain it. I didn't need to explain it. It was pretty obvious. I didn't talk about it, didn't debate it, didn't ask permission. I just stopped coming to the lectures where we were going to be watching a film. And I went through a pretty intense time that senior year of high school, some intense soul searching on who am I, what am I about, seeking the Lord's face. It's not as though I had never seen anything like that, not as a high school teenager. We had the internet. I had seen that kind of material. I had been exposed to that kind of material, but never in a classroom environment where I'm seated next to kids about my age, maybe a little older in many cases. A professor is requiring us to watch this and not just watch, but study and analyze and write about it. I felt profoundly uncomfortable and I walked out and it was political. It was a question of culture. And essentially, the selection process, as far as that professor and others that I had were concerned, the selection process was going to weed out my type. Speaking of correction, we were going to be corrected if we did that kind of a thing, objecting, challenging their meta narrative, and saying, I don't want to be a part of this. You know, it's funny. When I went to Cedarville, Lauren and I attended Cedarville for a year. She attended a year and a half. I attended for a year, two semesters. But Cedarville was also big on studying film and art and literature and culture. But Cedarville had a curriculum on DVDs that you could buy, which I did buy, that talked through how do you watch a movie or a TV show with intentionality? How do you study what it is that the director and the writer and the actors and the producers are trying to communicate? How do you perceive worldview as being transmitted in film? And each DVD had a short film followed by a in-depth analysis of how you can spot, how you can hear the show-don't-tell principle in what the creators of the content think about God and about man and about the purpose of life and how we got here and where we're going, what we're supposed to be about. And it all made sense, and I loved it. And I'm that kind of a person. That's why I podcast. That's why I talk about everything, because I am that kind of a person. I've always been that kind of a person. But the public community college wasn't actually first and foremost trying to cultivate that kind of a person or reward somebody for being that kind of a person objectively. No, no. The public college and university back in 2004, 2005 was trying to figure out how should we engineer society? Who should we pass and who should we fail? Who should we allow to be thought of and facilitate being thought of as the cream of the crop? And who should we dismiss, shrug off, discourage, demoralize, embarrass, humiliate, cast aspersions on. Back in 2004, when Shapiro wrote this, he was observing and hearing reports of and detailing classes where 
Sex was the subject, but economics was the excuse to talk about sex, or history was the excuse, or biology, or film, or math, or English. You know, I had another class at Southern State. I took a English 103, I think it was, course, because I tested very high for reading and for writing. And so I took an English 103 class because based on my scores, it was deemed that I could skip a class. And so I did. And my English 103 class, as I remember, if I recall correctly, unless it was a 102, but my English class, either way, had a final wherein we were supposed to write a research paper. And of course, the class went through different kinds of writing and different styles and different objectives, purposes that you might write to accomplish. And the final was supposed to be a research paper, and we were supposed to pick a topic and really dive deep and have our sources cited and have a reference page and everything in the correct format and have a diversity of different sources. And so I wrote a piece on a topic that I found interesting that I wanted to explore, the topic of how fathers and husbands are portrayed in sitcoms and in other media through the 90s and by that point, the early 2000s. And how does that affect, how can that affect boys growing up seeing these examples of men? How does this relate to fatherlessness when boys don't have a father in the home, but they see fathers portrayed on screen as bumbling idiots? What does that do for the aspirational model, for the self-esteem, for the goals, for the mental health, the emotional health of boys? I wrote a piece all about this. I researched it for weeks, spent a lot of time. I was very invested and I turned it in and I got a D as I recall. And I was floored. I was shocked. And there also, we submitted all the materials to Adams County Christian School and my submissions, my homework, my writing over and against what the requirements were, what the assignment was, all of that was graded. And I got an A because my professor in the English class wasn't interested first and foremost with whether I had a good command of the English language, whether I was objectively a good communicator or whether I was capable of doing the work as assigned, following the assignment instructions. My professor, it became clear to me as the years went on, was offended by the content of what I had written. And so even if it was going to mean paying for that course out of pocket for me as a student, or possibly having a harder time moving on from that community college to a more prestigious university or college, I was going to be reprimanded and punished for the content of my writing, not for the quality of my writing. And yet these are the kinds of stories that Brainwashed is filled with. And this is why after my experience of one year at Southern State Community College, I wasn't interested in going on to more college and more university. If this is what college is, if this is what university is, I'm not interested. You know, even the Christian schools, And I loved Cedarville, but we went off to Cedarville, Lauren and I. And I'm surrounded by classmates who, in most cases, had been taught K through 12 in the public schools. In many cases, they'd been in Christian schools. 
And in plenty of cases, they had been homeschooled, but I'm surrounded by classmates who just want to get a passing grade. And the public colleges and universities are filled with kids who just want to get a passing grade and get this over with so they can move on to a career and real life. And I thought, you know, even in the Christian college or the Christ-centered university that's so expensive, my dorm mates are blasting Eminem and watching Stargate SG-1 and playing Halo and making crude jokes all the time. And so what am I actually getting, right? What is the expectation here? We go to chapel and then in our junior or senior year of college, maybe a tragedy happens and we're not actually prepared to cope with a serious illness that somebody we know and love is diagnosed with or a sudden death. We're not coping with that. We have a preparation to enter into the professional world, but that is the big idea. Enter into the professional world, and yes, you can honor God by approaching nursing or engineering or history or economics or the liberal arts out of a desire to please and honor Christ, our King. You can absolutely do that, and I still admire and appreciate that Cedarville, in many pockets, in many corners, was promoting that. But for most of my classmates who had come up through K through 12, and in a few notable examples, their parents had forced them to go to Cedarville. They didn't want to go to Cedarville. They didn't want to be there. But this was the school that their parents would pay for. Their parents didn't want them going to a public college or university because their parents knew. The parents knew that there was all kinds of nonsense. There was drinking and drugs and partying and sex and atheism waiting for them in a public college or a public university. The kids didn't care. They'd already been exposed to plenty of that in public high schools, but now here they were. They didn't want to be there, but here they were. Their parents had paid for it and were requiring them to stay. And if their attitudes weren't great about it, well then, students like me just had to get over it because this is what it was. You know, the thing that strikes me about brainwashed is if the public colleges and the public universities are the domain of atheists and socialists and Marxists and gender theorists and critical race theorists, and if there's an incentive structure whereby you just tell the professors what they want to hear so you can pass the classes, so you can get your diploma, so you can go get your job in the real world, and then you can live out your convictions. What happens to young adults when they go through four years of that and then get out into the professional world and they find out that their manager or the company owner or the stockholder also wants them to just say what is expected if you want to keep working here? Just like if you want to stay in college, if you want to pass this class, you're going to say what we want you to say when you get out into the professional world. If you want to keep your job, you want to stay here, if you want to get promoted and go anywhere in the company, you're going to have to tell us what we want to hear. You're going to have to not say what we don't want you to say. What have those kids actually learned? Not first and foremost, the degree program, what they learned first and foremost is obey. It's an obedience factory, just like K through 12 is an obedience factory. But here's where it gets maybe a little bit spicy. And what I'm about to talk about In relation to all of this, if you've got young kids around that you don't want hearing this, by all means, 
pause the podcast, resume it later, put in some headphones, listen in the other room, send your kids to go do something more innocent. But there's actually a very perverse variation on what we were talking about earlier in this podcast episode about play as a medium of learning. The importance of play in childhood development, it's not just children, it's also adults, particularly young adults. Provided you are ready for us to proceed, let me just be very frank. What Ben Shapiro is talking about in Brainwashed, about professors having sex with students, certain colleges having a quota for how many sexual partners each student should have had by the time they finished their education there. Coursework being explicitly sexual and sometimes even involving sex acts as part of the assignment. You're going to watch pornography and we're going to study pornography. Or in the case of one film school that Ben Shapiro talks about, a film school ran into some controversy as one of the students decided that For their final, they were going to play a film for the whole class of people doing everyday casual activities, walking their dog in the park, buying some groceries, commuting to work. But here was the supposedly artistic twist. While this film would be playing for their classmates, two volunteers from the class would out and out have sexual relations in front of everybody. And this student at this film school came up with this idea, presented it to the professor. The professor said, sure, yeah, that's an interesting idea. Next, they went to the school administration and asked, can we do this? And the school administration said, absolutely not. And all of a sudden there was this big hubbub, this big furor. How dare you be the morality police? How dare you tell us we can't do something. You're restricting our freedom of speech. You're restricting our academic freedom. Ben Shapiro talks in this book about professors essentially unionizing, organizing together to repeal codes in public colleges and universities, which prohibit sexual relationships between students and their professors. On what basis? Well, for one thing, Because how dare you tell young women, and there's a tell, this is actually predatory male professors offering good grades to female students in return for sexual favors. Me too movement, anybody? But how dare you tell these young adult women what choices they can and cannot make? They should be free to make whatever choices without interference from the college or the university administration, antiquated codes. How dare you tell these girls what they can and cannot do? But there it is, right? There it is. You have male professors having sex with their students while at the same time pushing for action on climate change. We need to reduce Earth's population. We need to reduce production and consumption of goods because Earth's carrying capacity is being rapidly approached, and there's not going to be enough to go around. So we need to scale back on the number of people in the world, on the number of producers and consumers. What a convenient agenda. 
if those same professors are also having sex with and impregnating their female students, but don't want to be saddled with supporting all of the children. What better way to give cover to encouraging those young women to stay in college, stay in school, and get an abortion than to present it all as altruistic, scientific. This is just what you have to do to finish your degree program and then get into the working world, just like mommy and daddy sent you here to do. It's perverse. It's twisted. But it's also a highly effective way of brainwashing. And what I mean by that is you have a positive association with one of the strongest motivations in the human psyche, the sex drive. And it's all presented as academic, but then it's also play. So these young men and young women go off to college and they are bombarded with sexual imagery, sexual conversations, and then they're even encouraged to stay and live in co-ed dorms. So they're going to mix it up, right? So the boys and the girls are going to live together. And then what do you think they're going to do? These horndog young adults who've been talking about sex in their classes all day, who've been watching and studying pornography, who then in some of their final uh, assignments are told to go and create pornography. What do you think they're going to do? Well, they're going to have sex with each other. 100% they're going to do that. Of course they're going to have sex with each other. A lot. A lot of it. But then what is going to happen? They're going to have a sense of guilt and shame and estrangement and alienation, especially if they come from a more conservative upbringing. They're going to feel guilt and estrangement. And if they've already been told, hey, you can't trust your parents, your parents don't know. Your parents haven't been in college for decades. They don't know what the latest, greatest science is. Trust us. Well, that feeds right into and is fed by the guilt and shame that they feel from having fooled around with people that they're not going to bring home to mom and dad. They don't want their mom and dad knowing. At least they didn't used to want their mom and dad knowing. And at the same time, they're associating the degree program with their sex drives. And so it's just like Pavlov's dogs and operant conditioning. Ring the bell and salivate. Ring the bell and salivate. Why? Because you get a treat. The ringing of the bell being associated with the giving of a treat, at a certain point you can take away the treat and the dog still salivates. Teach the Marxist theory in the classroom and then encourage these students to be sexually excited, stimulated, and gratified. Then go back to teaching the Marxism in all its forms. And then go back to sexual stimulation. And then go back to teaching Marxism. And then go back to sexual stimulation. And then, even if the sexual stimulation is removed, they will still associate this very strong, very powerful sex drive with Marxist theory, Marxist thinking. And now, all of the emotions, all of the spiritual alignment that by God's design would associate a young man and a young woman with one another for life, where they would be bonded for life in a deep and comprehensive way, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. Now you have that kind of a bond 
created between these young men and young women and the coursework. A very similar thing happens in K through 12, I would say, but typically it happens with a child's more natural, God-given feelings of love and devotion for parents. Transfer a child's love and devotion, reverence, respect for mom and dad to their teachers, to the school administrators, to the school building. The school building is your new home. These teachers are your new mom and dad. More to the point, the state is your new mom and dad. Your classmates, all about your same age, your new brothers and sisters. The next logical sequence is when these kids grow up and they go off to college and university, take all of the feelings that they should be developing for their husband or their wife and transfer those onto professors, the college, the university. Again, if these are public colleges and public universities, the state. So then what, in effect, ends up happening for those who go to college, those who go off to university in so many cases for at least the last 20 years, but well well before, much earlier, at least the last 20 years, what happens? These people who from kindergarten on up until hmm, 25, 24, 25 years old, these American men and women think of the state as their mother and their father. They think of the state as their husband or their wife on a deep and emotional and spiritual level. But they would never call it that. They would never think to call it that. But this explains why we have progressivism, why progressivism is so alluring, why it's so all-encompassing. You know, I've said it before, I'll say it again. If you actually read Marx and Engels, if you read the Communist Manifesto, you'll understand Marx and Engels weren't thinking primarily in economic terms when they talked about redistribution of capital and wealth. They weren't thinking first and foremost in terms of factories and farms. They weren't thinking first and foremost in terms of dollars and cents. The means of production are you and me. How do you seize the means of production then? If you and me are the means of production, well, you take filial piety. You take this command to honor father and mother and you transfer it to the state, to the people. You take, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, or husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, laying his life down for her, or wives submit to your husbands in everything as unto the Lord. You take all of that and you transfer it to the state. And actually, come to think of it, if we really peel back the layers on this onion and are honest, how odd is it that a husband being the head of his wife is seen as repressive, controlling, backwards, illiberal, restrictive, confining, but all of us as citizens obeying unquestioning, believing unquestioningly our government, so long as a Democrat is in office, that is actually true liberation. When did that switch happen? Where did that come from? How is it that parents are being labeled dangerous 
by the Department of Justice and the FBI. They're being put on terrorist watch lists if they show up angry to a school board meeting or a parents-teacher conference. But teachers, professors, requiring their students to watch pornography or read pornography and talk about their sexual fantasies openly with one another, being encouraged to experiment with one another. That, oh, well, that, yeah, that's totally normal. In fact, it's always been that way. What are you talking about? There were community schools back before the signing of the Declaration of Independence. This is totally normal, very American. No, it's not. No, it's not. It's about as honest and genuine as Zoe on the Dr. Drew program grabbing Ben Shapiro by the back of the neck and threatening him with physical violence because he called her, not her, he called him, sir, because he's a he. The public education system can say that it has a right to your K through 12 children. It doesn't make it so. The colleges and the universities can claim that this is a rite of passage. This is totally Normal. This is as it should be. And if you don't go to college, if you don't go to university, if you don't get a bachelor's degree or a master's degree or a doctorate, you're the loser. You're the failure. They can say it. It doesn't make it so. It doesn't make it the case. How many holders of bachelor's and master's degrees from public colleges and universities make as much money per year as I do? And I didn't need a college degree. I didn't need to go to university to get the job that I have now. What was needed was work. What was needed was applying myself. You know, what if, right? What if we have sent a lot of our young people into a trap where they will be told, if you want to get an A in this class, you're not going to upset me. You're not going to offend me by doing what the assignment says in a conservative way, in a Christian way. If you want to get an A in this class, you're going to at least keep quiet about that, but then also too, you're going to participate. If I tell you it's time to play a sexy game, you're going to participate. If I tell you to watch a film where a young woman takes her top off, if I say that that's what it takes to get an A, then that's what it takes to get an A. If I tell you you're going to write something sympathetic to male bashing feminism in the mainstream, that's what you're going to write. Or you're at very least not going to stick up for boys and men in American society if I'm a feminist. You want an A in this class. I know it's not in the syllabus. I know it's not in the official assignment, but you and I just need to understand that that's what's expected. And you'll learn. You'll learn if you want to stay around, if you want to be successful here. And if mommy and daddy have sent these kids off into these environments saying, oh, we're so proud of you. What's the inverse? The inverse is... If you stand on the truth of God's word, if you stand on what is right and you fail that class or you don't graduate or you're expelled or you're threatened or you're harassed or you're bullied by your own professors, if you're mocked in front of the whole class and you don't want to be there anymore, but now you've got all this debt and you got to pay back, what's the unspoken inversion of we're so proud of you for going off to college, going off to university. If you don't stay with it, if you don't stick to it, if you don't follow this through all the way, we're going to be embarrassed of you. We're going to be ashamed of you. 
Ooh, now that's an ugly thing. You know, in some sense, this is actually the fault of parents. It's the fault of parents who either didn't know or didn't care that this is what kids were being exposed to. If a young adult man or woman is old enough to be told, all right, you got to make your choices, well, then that's what it is. And parents shouldn't be twisting their kids' arms in an emotional way, in a social way, as if not going off into that, we would just be very disappointed. We would just be really let down. No, 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 no. What if this is a trap? And what if it doesn't get better when your kid graduates? What if it actually gets worse because now the corporations are filled with people who don't know economics or business management or medicine or computer science or engineering nearly so well as they know how to keep quiet about their convictions if that's what it takes to get a passing grade or substitute passing grade for paycheck. That's how we got here. That's how we got to this moment. We believed the lie that we depend on these people when in actual fact, it's the opposite. These bloodsuckers, these parasites depend on us and we are the host and they are the ones sucking us dry. You know, it's rich to get a lecture from somebody who lectures for a living and fools around with their students and they get tenure to be activists and agitators and protesters and they want to lecture those of us who actually produce something in society about how we're not going to be able to produce enough for everybody to have what they need so we need to have fewer people. I don't see the lecturers self selecting, self-terminating. What they hope is that the people who disagree with them politically and socially and culturally will self-terminate or just keep quiet because they're not an expert. What would they know? They never went to college. They never went off to university. What would they know? You know, I'm with Matt Damon from Goodwill Hunting on at least this point that you can get a really solid education checking out books from the library read them on your own. You will be much better off. Read them on your own and work and save and learn to manage your money wisely and learn to repair things that are broken and fix them up when they get wore out. Learn to buy and build quality and to be a good steward of what the Lord has blessed you with. And don't develop filial piety for the public education system. Don't develop strong emotional bonds to public colleges and universities that you're supposed to be forming with your husband, ladies, or your wives, men. What an odd moment we find ourselves in where people will get to talking about their alma mater. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Hold on. Hold on a second. Alma mater is Latin. What, what does alma mater mean again? Nourishing mother. Did you know that? Nourishing mother. Alumni which, oh, by the way, is Latin for foster son, ward, pupil, but let's just say foster son. Alumni of a certain college or university will talk very fondly of their alma mater, their nourishing mother. That is to say, the institution that they see as or think of as or feel towards as if that institution were their mother. And it's always been lost on me. You know, yeah, I appreciate some things about 
Cedarville University. Cedarville University was not my mother. Southern State Community College was not my father. Those professors were adults who were supposed to know things that they were going to teach me, and that's it. If somebody comes in to give some technical training or some safety training at work, I don't think of them as my mother and my father. That would be weird. But this attachment forms, and that's not by accident. And I also don't think that it's by accident that for many of these young professionals, the best and the brightest, the ones that get talked up the most, who the self-esteem is the most amplified for, the best in breed, social engineers, the ones who stay the longest get married latest in life, they have the fewest children, but they also tend to be the ones who are the most influential because, hey, you spent the most time in obedience training Therefore, we trust that you will be the most obedient, if that's the big idea, more than the subject itself. The big idea is obedience. You're the most obedient, which means you will also be the most likely to lead others in obedience. If the big idea here is first and foremost obedience, then I I look at this transgendered person with his hand on the back of Ben Shapiro's neck on national TV, on Dr. Drew's program, And I think this isn't supposed to look like a man threatening another man or even a ugly woman threatening a man. This is supposed to look like a postmenopausal woman correcting her son. That's what it's supposed to look like for all of us. That's what we're supposed to feel is that the new religion of Marxism, of atheism, of secular humanism, the new religion will stop playing games and will start disciplining you if you don't obey, if you don't give in to its every will and whim. But I say all the more rather than less, for those of us who homeschool, it's very important that we would be playing games as a way of practicing, thinking critically, being wise, making good decisions, being strategic, that we would play games with one another who are like-minded as a way of cultivating strong friendship fellowship. You know, I was thinking about this this past Sunday because the sermon was in 1 John and there was talk of fellowship. And so I thought for anyhow, I've got my literal word Bible app open. What is this word fellowship? What does it actually mean? And in the Greek, fellowship has a lot to do with sharing. We need to play games with one another, have our families gather together and play games and joke, and laugh, and tell stories, and break bread as a way of sharing so that we can build strong culture. Because this nonsense we're seeing in the broader world will pass away like so much chaff. It won't endure. It won't last. This nonsense in the wider world is even now eating itself. It's consuming itself. It's not just unreasonable in the sense of It's hard to make a reasoned argument with it. It's incapable of reasoning because it's been given over to a reprobate mind, to an unreasonable, incapable of reasoning mind. By contrast, the saints, God's people, those of us who are in Christ, we are to tell one another that it will go well with us. We're to edify one another, build each other up, spur one another on towards love and good deeds, Remind one another of what is good and true and excellent and praiseworthy and honorable. 
and to think on these things and to build up one another into more and more the likeness of Christ, our Savior, our King, our Lord. Christ is Lord. I would recommend this book to you. I would, if you need some convincing. It's a bit dated, but things have got things have gotten worse. They haven't gotten better in 19 years. So there's that. I would also say there's another book by Ben Shapiro, one other book I've read by him that was even better. He's gotten better as a writer over time. He's a good communicator. He is a sharp thinker, excellent commentator, in my opinion. Not always right. I don't agree with him on everything, but he's very often very insightful. He published a piece of nonfiction in 2019, before all the COVID madness, called The Right Side of History, How Reason and Moral Purpose Made the West Great. And this was an enjoyable read for me, not least because it's bigger tent, it's more broad and comprehensive than the vision of Donald Trump that was commonly being repeated like a mantra during the Trump administration, during the first term of Trump. Maybe we get another one. I don't know. I'm rooting for DeSantis. I think Shapiro is too. I know the Daily Wire folks have been giving him very good coverage, not for no reason. He's doing good work. But the right side of history contradicts this manipulative, very professorial, very higher education, progressive, liberal, Marxist condescension that if you disagree with transgenderism, homosexuality, bisexuality, if you disagree with critical race theory, you're on the wrong side of history. And that's wrong. That's not true, actually. But why is it not true? And why is something else more correct, more right? That's what this book, The Right Side of History, is about. Delving into Athens and Jerusalem, the Greeks and the Jews and the Christians, making Western civilization what it is, what it's been. When it's been great, you can thank the Greeks and the Romans and the Jews and the Christians for it. But if you want to see an earlier piece of writing by Ben Shapiro, one focused on the dark side of higher education in the U.S., check out Brainwashed, How Universities Indoctrinate America's Youth by Ben Shapiro. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. I really do. That's all the time I've got. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.